I feel very much this morning that there is a prophetic unction on what's about to take place over the next few moments. Uh, and I don't say that lightly or casually. I, I sense a measured weight from the Lord on what's going to happen here, but it's probably going to be a little different than what you expect hearing that language. Just a little background or a little peek into my process. Usually when I come to a church in a community and I know that I'm going to preach several times, I will, the week or two leading up to it, mentally uh, and strategically think through what I need to preach each service. And I usually have a pretty strong idea before I get to the weekend or before I get to my time with a group of people of where I'm going to go. Uh, however, on the day of, I always just take some time to just check the wind. Uh, is the Lord on a thing? Uh, is His hand on it or not? And so what I had intended to preach this morning, uh, I just didn't sense the hand of the Lord on it. Uh, and it's not that it isn't a good word. It's not that it, it doesn't have resonance, you know, or benefit for his kingdom or for you. I could preach it and it would be beneficial. But I want to find what the Lord's hand is on. And so uh, earlier in the week, I just felt a little inkling in my spirit to preach uh, something that I have never preached in a congregational setting. Uh, I've communicated this a few times to collections of leaders, uh, but, but I've never preached it in a congregational setting. And so when I felt that inkling, I, honestly, I just, I, I, I hid it in my heart, but I shelved it because I thought, well, that's not really compatible for the environment. Uh, but it, as I woke up this morning and began to put my finger to the wind, uh, I just really sensed that the hand of the Lord was on this uh, for you, uh, but not just for you, for your region. Now, I believe that there is healing that is available today. And when I say that, I, I'm, I certainly always believe that physical healing can be made manifest in our lives. But I'm talking about healing in the deep places of your soul and spirit. There's healing for anger. There's healing for sorrow. There's healing for frustration. There's healing for stress. There's healing for anxiety. There's healing for a lack of trust in people, suspicion. There's healing for victimhood. There's healing for all of that. But a lot of times when we hear the term healing, we make the assumption that God is going to swoop in. And touch us in our place of infirmity, in our place of need, and fix it. But I have found that a lot of times God won't do that. And the reason He won't do that is because the better path to healing is called maturity. Spiritual maturity and biblical maturity. And a lot of times the reason God won't put his hand on a pain point in your life and just fix it is because you will remain in immaturity and you will ultimately slip back into that cycle repeatedly because you have not learned how to grow out of something. You just wanted God to fix something. And so I don't say that with any uh, sense of condemnation. I say it with an invitation this morning that there's some stuff God wants you to mature out of that you've been hoping he would just come and fix. That your healing is not in his presence flooding this place and doing something instantaneous and miraculous, your healing is going to come from changing the way you think and perceive about a thing. Changing the way you approach a thing. Changing the way you respond to a thing. And you will find that that kind of healing is a long-lasting. And that kind of healing buffers you and makes you able to withstand the inevitable assaults that come down the road. I'd rather begin to be fortified in maturity so that when I inevitably cross paths with difficulty again, I am equipped for that to not wound me the way it did before. But we just want him to fix it without being conscious of the fact that you're going to face difficulty again. And he doesn't want you to live in a cycle. I believe that this has some prophetic unction because I am a child of Highway 51. Like I, I grew up just down the road a little north of here. 
I am well versed in the culture of Highway 51 and I hope that this doesn't come across as somebody who doesn't live here anymore so I am, I am hurling ideas from afar. But, but I believe without a doubt that God wants to break some stuff off of Highway 51. I believe God wants to break some victim mentality off of Highway 51. I believe he wants to break some inferiority complex off of Highway 51. I believe he wants to break off some poverty mindset off of Highway 51, right? I believe he wants to break off some cynicism and suspicion off of Highway 51. I believe he wants to break off some gossip and division from Highway 51. And he wants to break all of that in the name of the Lord. And I stand in a pulpit on Highway 51 and make the declaration that the day of those things dominating the society around here are coming to a conclusion. Inferiority has to go. Poverty mindsets have to go. Victimhood and suspicion has to go in the name of the Lord. But let it be understood that it'll never be broken off of a region until some churches are free of it completely. Because judgment starts in the house of the Lord. And if you want to see Highway 51 have all that mess broken off, then it can't have any room or space given right here at Journey Church. We all, to some degree or another, are products of our environment. And no matter how much we resist the idea, all of us are subjected to the influence of the world around us. And a lot of times we carry stuff that we don't even really realize that we're carrying. They're mindsets and ideas that just get entrenched in us because we're so immersed in them. But in the name of the Lord, we cast down every idol. We smash every idea that is not congruent with what Jesus has accomplished in our lives, right? And so I want to dive in and I just want to hit it head on. And I'll ask a series of questions uh, and, and you don't have to raise your hand. You can just signify with a little smile or a chuckle because my guess is you can identify with some of the stuff that I'm going to say. Have you ever been lied to? Have you ever been lied about? Have you ever sensed that someone was trying to manipulate you or take advantage of you? Have you ever been fired? Have you ever been harshly criticized? Well, have you ever had somebody say hurtful things about your spouse? Let me just pause for a moment because I'm not just talking about at Kroger. I'm not just talking about at your place of employment because that stuff happens in here too. And I don't say that to throw stones at Journey Church. I say that as someone who has spent 43 years in the church. And it happens to all of them. Alright? Have you ever had somebody talk bad behind your back? Has somebody ever left you and abandoned you? Has your name ever been slandered? Have you ever been accused of something that's just not true? Has a close friend or even a family member ever turned their back on you and gone the other way? Have you ever had people be mean to your kids? Oh, Lord. Little League ball. <laughs> Have you ever worked for someone who seemingly doesn't care about your family dynamic? They don't care about you. They just care about what you can produce or do for them. Have you ever given everything you have and tried your best given wonderful effort, but it just not seemed to work. You didn't get the results. You, you didn't see the progress. You, you hurled every bit of you at it. And it just didn't play out the way that you anticipated. Have you ever tried to forge ahead in the midst of personal grief? Have you ever dealt with personal grief and feel like nobody else really cares? Nobody else notices and you live with the isolation and loneliness that accompanies. Have you ever uh, had your closest confidant tell everyone everything you said in confidence? You know, have you ever had somebody who was a good friend and as a result of the friendship you opened your heart and you became vulnerable and you became transparent only for that friendship to dissolve and them use all of that as weaponry against you? Have you ever had family members who know you really well, parents even, that raised you and they know all of the not-so-good stories about you and they just keep bringing them up? 
Have you ever been at Thanksgiving or Christmas and the same three stories about you doing something dumb or inappropriate, those are the stories that keep getting told and you wonder, is that the only way you see me? Have you ever wept over someone and then them receive your affection but eventually reject you after all that you've done and been in their life? Have you ever watched somebody make a terrible decision and wrestle with the anger and the grief? Have you ever had somebody say that you just weren't good enough? You weren't capable, you weren't talented, you weren't sufficient. Have you ever been misunderstood, taken out of context, or falsely accused of having bad motives? you ever had somebody that only had one shred of information in the story? Like they had one bullet point. It was three pages worth of information and they had one bullet point. And they made a huge, broad, sweeping assumption about you and your character based off one bullet point without all the other information. You ever had that happen to you? Have you ever done that to somebody else? My gosh. Have you ever been left to deal with the fallout of somebody else's lack of integrity? Somebody else sinned. Somebody else did the wrong thing. Somebody else made a bad decision. And you had to clean it up. Have you ever had a relationship that was close and full of love? And then it wasn't. The bottom line is everybody in this room has experienced at least one of those, if not a whole lot of them. And I I, want to reiterate that those aren't just things that happen in the secular world. Those are things that many of us have experienced right here in the church. And we're in a moment in America where it seems that people are holding with a great sense of affection in their heart all the times they've been hurt in church. And they use it as a justification for the way they are. Look, you've been hurt. Can we just go ahead and put that on the table? You've been hurt, you've been disappointed, you've been wronged at some point, you've been mistreated, you've been mishandled, you've been neglected, you've been abandoned. You've dealt with something somewhere along the way that is categorized as disappointment or disillusionment, destruction. Welcome to living. I have compassion and empathy because I too am a human who has experienced all of these things, but at some point something has to rise up on the inside of you that says that's called human experience. It might not be right. It might not be just. It might not be fair. It might not be godly. It might be wrong in every way, shape, form, or fashion. But what I do with that will make all the difference for me going forward. And so we come to a man named Paul in the New Testament. He penned the large majority of the New Testament. I doubt when he was writing letters to churches that he imagined that 2,000 years later it would be canonized and it would be foundational for what we're doing in the church now. But nevertheless, that's how God used him. But a lot of times when we think of people in Scripture, we inadvertently deify them. Jesus is God. Paul is not. And I don't say that to diminish a single word that Paul said, but only to emphasize that Paul was very human as he wrote. And scholars will tell you, and if you read closely enough, you can identify it yourself. You could see Paul's humanity in a lot of his writings. Now you you got to know Paul. Uh, and and, and you got to understand who he is. And I'm going to give you a little context on the life of Paul. And then we're going to read a few different passages. And then we're going to get to the end. And we're going to turn some things around in our life. I didn't say God's going to turn them around. I said we're going to turn them around. And God is going to move on our decision to make a turn. Alright? So Paul was a Jewish high level elite religious leader. He was unbelievably educated. As a matter of fact, he could quote what we would call the first five books of the Bible verbatim. He was brilliant. You can tell that from his writings that he was one of the most intellectually magnificent human beings to ever walk the earth. He did such profound work in helping people understand what Jesus was and who he was in the world. 
But Paul, prior to his conversion on the road to Damascus, was a bloodthirsty murderer who had very strong, deeply rooted convictions about who God was and how God moved in the world. And in the midst of those deep, strong convictions, he had developed prejudices. He had developed certain cynicism. And so when he has a Damascus Road experience, it was transformational. It was radical. He went from being Saul to being Paul, right? He became a new man. But just because you are saved, it doesn't mean all those years of your soul having lived pre-Jesus are automatically erased. Can he? Listen, we, we, can, we can over-spiritualize right here, but all of us know it to be true. We met a whole lot of people that they are saved and going to heaven. But, but there is still a good bit of their old self left as residual in them. Because, and that's the stuff that has to be matured. You're saved, but you might have to mature out of being deceptive. You're saved, but you might have to mature out of being manipulative. You're saved, but you might have to mature out of being lustful. You're saved, but you might have to mature out of being suspicious or angry or bitter. Right? There's some stuff that God does instantly. And I would say this, and it would sound like an oxymoron, but some things in His grace, He requires us to grow out of. So that in the growing process, we become equipped to navigate the terrain of life ahead of us and to walk in the authority that He needs us to carry. Because a lot of times the stuff that we've come out of is the stuff that he's assigned us to break in the earth. But I can't break it unless I have learned the path to seeing it broken. And so Paul is this person of substance with unbelievable brilliance. But when you start reading his writing, you notice some real human stuff on the inside of him. There's evidence that Patience was not one of the virtues that he had ease with. Paul was capable of having a sharp disagreement with someone. As a matter of fact, there was the moment when Paul and Barnabas, who were dear friends, as a matter of fact, if you read closely enough in the text, Barnabas was Paul's spiritual father. When everybody else was suspicious of Paul's conversion, Barnabas said, no, there's something in him. And Barnabas brought him along and began to elevate him. But there was a moment when Paul and Barnabas had a sharp disagreement and a spiritual father and a spiritual son went opposite ways because they could not agree on Mark. Mark had abandoned them. He had made a mistake. And Barnabas saw good in Mark and said, we need to bring him with us. And Paul said, nope. He had wrote him off. Not exactly gracious or merciful or patient. Paul wrote him off and said, he has no place with us and I won't go if he's going. And so two people who were deeply attached relationally and spiritually separated. That, that tells you a little bit about who Paul was. He was not perfect. If you read his passages that he's written, you can tell that he has a little bit of a tendency toward hubris, condescension. He could get quite sarcastic. I'll read some of that in a moment. If you're, if you're a sarcastic person, uh, number one, that's not a fruit of the Spirit. <laughs> I would even go as far as to say it's not godly. Oh, we laughed and then we didn't. <laughs> he had a way of being condescending at times. He had an edge to him, especially in the earlier years of his ministry. His epistles are heavenly in theological importance. They're monumental in their doctrinal necessity. But they're earthy in their day-to-day -day practicality. And as he writes, you can watch him maturing. As he writes, you can see the evolution of a man increasingly becoming like Christ. And I'll show that to you in a moment. But when we get to 2 Corinthians, which is where we're going to spend most of our time today... Most believe that Paul wrote 2 Corinthians while in a prison in Ephesus. Now, being in prison wasn't totally uncommon for Paul. 
But if you read 1 Corinthians and then you read 2 Corinthians, you begin to observe that they have different tones. 2 Corinthians has an angst in it. It, it has tension in it. You can feel frustration emanating from Paul as he writes 2 Corinthians. It's a prison epistle. So on some level you would think it would be obvious. He, obvious he's in prison so he's stressed out. But I think it was deeper than that. First off, he was in prison in Ephesus. And you know we know the end of the story. We know that Paul got out of prison. But he didn't know he was going to get out of prison. He understood that a Roman prison had a high casualty rate. And so he was in prison in Ephesus, likely with a degree of uncertainty and ambiguity about his future. Has anybody ever lived with uncertainty about the future and felt the pressure of that? Oh, geez. Not only that, but he had been in prison a prior time. And him and Silas, in the middle of the night, did a praise break. And the prison broke. And so I would imagine Paul being human, probably somewhere in the midst of his Ephesus imprisonment thought, I praise the Lord over there and I got set free. Let me praise the Lord right here. I bet the chains will fall off. And just by knowing who Paul is, there's no doubt that he offered praise in that prison, but this time the chains didn't break. Have you ever tried something that worked before? And it didn't work again. So Paul is writing to the Corinthians. It's actually the third letter that he wrote. The, 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 the middle letter was lost in history. We don't know where it is. So there technically was 1st, 2nd, and 3rd Corinthians. But he's writing what we know as 2nd Corinthians. Living in uncertainty, living in stress and strain. But that's, that's not really all that he was writing to. See, the people in Corinth had began to experience some new teaching. Some people had come into their midst and they were altering the gospel. They were putting a spin on the message that Paul had preached. And not only that, but these subverters were coming in and they were calling into question Paul's authority as an apostle. They were questioning Paul's motives and his sincerity. They were questioning, questioning the legitimacy of his time with the Corinthians. Now the Corinthians were saved because of Paul. He had poured his guts out. He had sacrificed. He had served. But here they are listening to these subversive voices. And the people in Corinth, the believers, were now starting to question Paul's authority, his motives, his sincerity, and the legitimacy of his ministry. Can you imagine somebody that you poured yourself into suddenly becoming suspicious of you? Questioning you? You ever been questioned? You, you ever known your motives were right, but someone assumed they weren't? I mean, that's where Paul was. And so when he's writing 2 Corinthians, there's an edge to it. They're, 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 it's not streamlined and orderly. There, there's some feeling in it that we might not always categorize as Christian. But Christians can have feelings that aren't exactly Christian. I know you, you don't have those. You super save. But the guy with a microphone, I do from time to time. And so he writes this letter. And so 2 Corinthians 11, 16 through 18 if you'll hang with me, I've got an end game today that I believe is really important. Paul said, again I say, don't think I am a fool to talk like this. Paul is addressing the subverters and he's addressing the Christians that he's put so much into. Don't think I'm a fool to talk like this. But even if you do listen to me, as you would a foolish person, while I boast a little. And since others boast about their human achievements, I will too. Paul was basically saying, if I've got to prove to you 
I am legit, if I've got to prove to you my motives are good, if I've got to prove to you my credentials and qualifications for doing what I'm doing, let me go ahead and do that. Let me go ahead and boast. Now, by the time Paul wrote those lines, he had been to Jerusalem and he had stood before the original apostles who had walked with Jesus for three years and they had laid their hands on him and said, you are the real deal. I've got ordination with the assemblies of God. I'm grateful for that, but that ain't nothing compared to the Jerusalem council saying, you the real deal. Peter and James and John going, yep, you it. I appreciate our credentialing process, but, but that's a whole nother level. By the time he wrote, let me boast a little, he had stood in front of a Roman official, a governor, and there was a sorcerer in the presence of the governor manipulating the governor. And the sorcerer spoke up trying to impede Paul from delivering the good news to the governor. And Paul struck the sorcerer with blindness. I mean, you bad to the bone. That ain't Christian. But he's over telling people, you can't see now. <laughs> so when he says, let me boast, he's already done that. And God honored it. And the governor got saved, by the way. By the time he wrote, let me boast a little, he had healed a crippled man in Lystra. He had escaped prison miraculously with Silas. He had mesmerized and outsmarted the intellectual elite of Athens, which was the epicenter of intellect in that day. He had stood before the most brilliant minds the world had to offer, and he blew them, blew their minds. By the time he said, let me boast a little, he had seen the commerce of a city completely change. You remember it was in Ephesus. He was now in prison. But part of the reason he was in prison is because so many people were getting saved that they quit buying idols. And literally the economy of a region got flipped on its ear because of the gospel. So by the time he said, let me boast, he's like, done that. By the time he writes to the Corinthians, let me boast a little, he had visited 30 cities and had over 20 church plants that we know of under his belt. That doesn't count all of the church plants that came out of the 20 that he planted. It's possible the number was near 100 at this point, scholars believe. So by the time he says, let me boast a little, he's got a lengthy list of accomplishments that justify him, that validate him, that authorize him, that deputize him to do everything that he's doing. But the, ling the language and the boasting goes a direction that doesn't make a lot of sense. He wasn't going to boast about the 20 churches. He wasn't going to boast about the thousands he led to Jesus. He wasn't going to boast about the miracles that he performed. He wasn't going to boast about all of his published letters. He wasn't going to boast about the fact that he had been to the third heaven and seen things he wasn't authorized to tell. Which just, just tells you a little more about Paul. He did that thing. He, he was looking at people and said, I know a man who's been to the third heaven. But I can't tell you about that. He just wanted them to know. I'm bad to the bone. You just need to know that, but I can't talk about it. So Paul says, let me boast. But it wasn't how we would tend to boast. He said, let me show you my resume. But, but it wasn't stacked the way we would think it would be stacked. Let me, let me get on Instagram and try to shape the narrative of who you think I am. Let me get on Facebook and try to convince you that I got more money than I actually got. My gosh. That I'm more, I'm more spiritual than I actually am. Let me, like he, he just, this is what he boasted in. 2 Corinthians 19 through 21. After all, you think you're so wise, but you enjoy putting up with fools. You put up with it when someone enslaves you and takes everything you have. They take advantage of you. And Paul said, well, I'm too weak to do that. Basically, he was saying, I'm, too, I'm not manipulative and you've decided that that's weak. So this is what he starts boasting in after that. Verses 23 through 29. He said, are those people that are 
calling me into question? Are they servants of Christ? Well, I know I sound like a madman, but I've served him far more. Now, some of us would think that was arrogant. Maybe it was a little bit. He was ticked off. But when Paul said, I've served him more, he started making a list. And it is the complete opposite of braggadocious. Verse 23, he said, I've worked harder. When Paul wrote this, he had been on three missionary journeys. He made tents. Paul didn't make tents because he wanted a little side hustle. Paul didn't make tents because he just wanted a little extra pocket change. Paul made tents because he understood that the people that were getting saved, many of them were having to forfeit their careers. If they were a Jewish person and they got saved, many of them were ostracized from their family and their family business. If they were Roman and they got saved, many of them were kicked out of the guild of their trade and weren't allowed to deal in the trade. So a whole lot of believers during that time lost their income. And Paul knew they lost their income. I don't need to be a burden to them. So I'm going to make tents to fund myself and my ministry so that these people that are losing everything don't feel obligated to me. And then Paul would do this crazy thing. He did this in Ephesus. He would make tents all day, take the money from the tents, the, the, the tent money, and then he would rent out the town hall right in the middle of town, and he would spend hours a day preaching in between working. As a matter of fact, they had a stretch during the day in, in that time of, of Jewish culture. They had a stretch during the day where they would work in the morning, and then they would take a several-hour break in the middle of the day, and then they would work into the evening. Paul would work in the morning, make tents, take the money from that, rent out the town hall. Can you imagine how much that cost? He would preach for several hours to anybody that would come into the lecture hall, and then he'd go back to making tents. All for the glory of the Lord. He was working hard. He says in the next verse, or continuing in 23, I've been put in prison more often. He said, let me boast. I've been thrown in jail. That's not exactly something we brag about. As a matter of fact, we try to keep people from knowing that if we've been there. <laughs> we hope that don't pop up on the background check. Some scholars believe that Paul was imprisoned at least seven times. And that he spent up to six years of his life imprisoned. Verse 23 continues. He said, I've been whipped times without number. And I faced death again and again. Verse 25, three times I was beaten with rods. One of the times that we know about Paul and Silas had been preaching and this demon-possessed girl who was a fortune teller because of what the demon was doing in her life was following them around and they turned around and they evicted the demon, right? And the, the guys that were making money off the demon-possessed girl got ticked off because their income got cut and so they turned Paul in and he got beaten with rods. It was rods that are about this thick in the length of, of a man and he would get pounded by those. He said, let me boast. I've had that happen three times. That don't sound like bragging. Verse 25, he said, once I was stoned. That happened in Lystra. He was in there preaching the gospel and doing miracles. And the people who were heavily influenced by Roman culture started believing that, that Paul and Silas were, or excuse me, Paul and Barnabas were Zeus and Hermes. They're, they're false gods. And they all started worshiping them. Now, they didn't worship them like, you know, I'm going to raise a hallelujah. They started killing animals in the streets. <laughs> and Paul and Barnabas are like, this is out of hand. And they start saying, no, it's about the Lord. It's point your eyes to Jesus. They're just preaching. And some of the Jewish people who were well-meaning, well-intentioned, felt that blasphemy was happening. So they stoned Paul. Drug him out. Left him for dead. The joker got up. And went to preach in the next town. But you don't get hit by a bunch of rocks. And not have a few marks. I'm going somewhere with this. Hang with me. You go to the next town pretty disfigured. Bruised, bloodied, battered. They didn't have stitches. Like we have. Everything was rudimentary. 
archaic. Paul's eyesight was bad. Could it be because one of those stones did such damage to his eye? You get pounded with rocks and stuff gets broken. You don't have all the same um, modern medicine techniques that we have and bones don't set right. And many scholars believe by the time Paul gets to this point, he's hunched. Body parts don't work. How many of you have been in an accident? You've had an injury. And you still feel the ramifications of that. Years later, Paul would go into a city maimed and in pain and just keep on preaching the gospel. He said, three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a whole day and night adrift at sea. Let me just give you some indicator here on this. We know based on Acts 27 that Paul was shipwrecked in Acts 27. Paul wrote 2 Corinthians before Acts 27 happened. Paul had been shipwrecked three times, yet he gets on another ship that wrecks in Acts 27. I don't know about you, but I'd probably find another means of transportation. There's a lot that Paul is, is, quote, boasting about, but this one stirs my heart. You know, I had a little black pickup truck that I drove in college, a little Chevy S10, lightweight truck. Uh, and, and, and I called it Black Stallion. Some of you might have heard me talk about Black Stallion before. Black Stallion had anger management issues. <laughs> he had a tendency to rear-end other automobiles. And I'd hit the brakes and he'd just keep on going. Those little trucks, some of y'all had one of those. You remember, like, the, you just hit the brakes and they just... To this day, if I see taillights, I'm quick to the brake. I, I, several years ago, was driving through an intersection, four-way intersection, pretty big intersection. I had a green light I was driving through. A car from the other side did not have a green turn arrow, but they took their liberties. And they turned in front of me, and I hit them right in the intersection. They spun off. I careened off of them, hit a large metal pole, totaled my car. It was an ordeal. Can I tell you that to this day, when I go through an intersection, there's a caution in me because of that experience. I just got to believe you get on one ship and it wrecks. Next time you get on a ship, you're checking out the hull. You get on two that wreck, you, you are interviewing the captain on the next one. There's something about Paul here that stirs my heart. He didn't allow a shipwreck to shipwreck his purpose and his faith. He kept on getting on boats. He didn't allow a previous bad experience to become so authoritative in his life that it prevented him from doing what God had called him to do and being who God had called him to be. He had experienced a pain and a discomfort and inconvenience, a difficulty. But he was determined to not allow that difficulty to become the Lord of his life. For the Lord of his life wanted him to keep getting on ships. And I just want to say it, there's some of us in the room that we experienced some version of a shipwreck. And to this day, that shipwreck has way too much influence over us following the Lord and being who God intended. And a lot of times we will point back to the shipwreck and say, that's why I am the way I am. And I would just submit to you, no, the cross is the dominant influence in your life. The empty grave is a bigger voice than the wrecked ship. And at some point, you got to wake up and grow up and say, that does not get to be the authority. Well, it hurts. I know it hurts. I'm wounded. I know you're wounded. But you get to choose what's actually the Lord of your life. 
And whether you realize it or not, you have made that your king. I'm not saying it to be harsh. I'm not saying it to pour salt in the wound, although salt does heal the wound. I am calling you to the place of mature healing. It hurt. It was real. We're not dismissing it. We're not denying it. We're not diminishing it. It was painful. It was real. It was wrong. It was unfair. It was all the things. But you got to keep getting on ships. Because there's places God's trying to take you. And you can't go there because you're scared of the ship. Because the ship hurt you before. It's still hurting you. Because it's controlling you. I mean, this just needs to settle in for a moment. There's some of us in this room, if we're being really honest, we trend toward being jaded or cynical or suspicious. Not trusting. I mean this with every ounce of love I can muster. Those are not fruits of the Spirit. Those are illegal governors in the life of a believer. And you were born for more than that. I want God to take it away. He wants you to mature out of it. He wants you to make the decision that I will not bow my knee to that any longer. There is but one that gets my bended knee. He said, I've traveled in verse 26 many long journeys. If you'll come play the keys. I've faced danger from rivers and robbers. I face danger in cities, in the deserts, and on the seas. I face danger from my own people, the Jews, as well as from the Gentiles. I face danger from men who claim to be believers, but are not. I've worked hard and long, enduring many sleepless nights. Verse 27, I've been hungry and thirsty. I've gone without food. I've shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. Then besides it all, I have the daily burden of my concern for all the churches. When they're weak, I feel it. When they're led astray, do I not burn with anger? And there's so much more in this that I could dive into, but I'm going to refrain. I'm just going to bring it to the end of Paul's life. I do want to touch on this. I'll do it quick. Five different times, this is what Paul said, five different times the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes. Five different times. I just want to pause and make this statement in case you haven't caught on yet. Paul's boast was in the pain he had endured, the difficulty he had navigated, the cost he had paid for the Lord. That's what he was most proud of. He wasn't most proud of the money he'd piled up or the accomplishments that he had built He was proud of the fact that he had gone through hell. But he didn't quit. He had been wronged and violated. But he was still coming. He had been dismissed and destroyed. But he wasn't going to be wounded. So 39 lashes. See, I had mentioned Paul could quote the first five books of the Bible. In the book of Deuteronomy, there is a law that Paul would have known very well. As a matter of fact, Paul probably enforced the law. And the law was this. If someone came into the synagogue and they were teaching or arguing with the synagogue leaders and the synagogue leaders felt like the theology was bad, maybe blasphemous, The synagogue leaders were authorized to beat that person with 39 lashes. Paul 
If you read the New Testament, especially in the book of Acts, had an odd pattern. Most every city he went into, where would he start his ministry? The synagogue. Paul knew he was going to say stuff that was controversial and would likely get him into arguments with synagogue leaders. And Paul knew very well, likely because he had administered it to others, that when he did that, lawfully, he was to be subjected to 39 lashes. Paul knew he was going to get hurt. He knew there was going to be some pain. But Paul kept going to synagogues. I'm not talking about being masochistic. I'm not talking about subjecting yourself to toxicity. But some of the things that we call toxic, it's just being people being human. And there's something in us that has to determine I'm willing to endure some difficulty to get to where God wants me to be and to become who God wants me to become. So we fast forward to the end of Paul's life. 2 Timothy 4, 6-8. through Thank you all for being so patient this morning. I do want to give this analogy. I'm just really trying to pick and choose where what I what I hit. You know, we understand that we're to take up our cross and follow Jesus, right? And we do understand that the the cross is emblematic of embracing difficulty. And we know that we're to be crucified with Christ, that our flesh is to be crucified. Do we know that? That's in the Bible, right? Dick Brogdon, who is a world-renowned missionary who started the Live Dead movement, which, which starts churches among unreached people groups, and a lot of the Live Dead missionaries subject themselves to the possibility of martyrdom. Dick Brogdon gave an example one time of crucifying the flesh. He said, you know, we're supposed to crucify our flesh, but there's a little bit of a challenge in that. We could take the hammer and nail... And we can drive it into our feet. And we could probably hold. I'll do it this way. We could probably hold the nail in place. And drive that hand in. But what do you do with the last hand? You have to hand the hammer to somebody else. That the only real path to a crucified flesh is the willingness to endure some of the pain that's inflicted upon us by other people. And God uses the wrong that they subject you to to kill the illegitimate things in us. Unfortunately, what happens in a lot of us is the wrong thing that was done to us doesn't kill the illegitimate things because we hold on to bitterness and we hold on to anger and we hold on to unforgiveness or we hold on to anxiety. We hold on to these things. So Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, 6, this is the end. Literally, this is the last chapter of his life. He's writing Timothy. His time is done. He knows he's about to die. And this is what he says. My life has been poured out as a drink offering to God. I fought the good fight and I finished the race. I've remained faithful. And now the prize awaits me. The crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me. I'll talk about drink offering in a moment. I want to go back to or go to chapter 4 verses 10 through 11 and verse 16. I want you to hear this. Paul says, Demas has deserted me because he loves the things of this life and has gone to Thessalonica. Remember, Paul's at the end and somebody deserts him. 
Christians has gone to Galatia. And Titus has gone to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Listen to this. The first time I was brought before the judge, no one came with me. Everyone abandoned me. I told you Paul grew. That he matured. I think this next line may be the greatest evidence of him becoming increasingly like Christ. For he says, may it not be counted against them. It sounds the complete opposite of what he did with Mark and Barnabas. Earlier in his ministry, he rejected Mark because Mark didn't meet his standard and Mark did wrong. And he said, I don't want anything to do with him. We actually find out in some of these verses that he tells Timothy to to bring Mark. The same guy that dismissed somebody now at the end is saying, the people that have abandoned me, may it not be counted against them. That sounds strikingly familiar to a Savior on a cross saying, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. I'm not saying that Paul getting to this last line was easy. I'm not saying that it wasn't a a winding road of ups and downs. But I am saying that in Christ, we are responsible and obligated to grow to this last line of may it not be counted against them. That's the call of following Jesus. You hear that? The call of following Jesus is that you graduate to the point where all the wrongs that have been imposed upon you, your line about them is may it not be counted against them. Mercy. Mercy. Mercy upon them, Lord. And if you were to listen to Paul talk today, I have a feeling he would tell you all of that did nothing but grow me into everything God intended for me to be. And it also caused my affection for the Lord to swell beyond what I thought was humanly possible. The pain that you've experienced is not so that you can have a check in the victim category or the wronged category. It's so that you have material to turn to worship. He said, my life is a drink offering. What he was saying is my whole life's been worshipped. And all this mess. See, the drink offering was literally a a liquid that was poured out on the ground. It accomplished nothing. It It was waste. But it was unto the Lord. And it was this, in essence, saying, even if I was completely ineffective, it was all to the Lord. So it's all beautiful and it's all worship. What I'm trying to point out in these last moments is this. That thing... Whatever it is, as we've been talking, you know. You might be in the middle of it. You might be on the, on the tremors side of it. You, 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 you might be in the aftershocks portion. Or it might be just something that has left structural damage from years ago. You know. But what I'm trying to say to you this morning is that should not be fuel for dysfunction. It should be fuel for worship. Lord, you got me through that. I didn't die. You were with me right in the middle of it. You were faithful every step of the way. Lord, I gave my life to you and I endured it and I didn't quit as an offering of affection to you. And Lord, I'll stay in your church 
And I won't be cynical and jaded and suspicious and that'll be my worship to you. I'll be committed. And when I'm wronged, I'll grow. And that'll be my worship to you. Your greatest opportunities for worship are not the songs that we sing. It's not even the financial offering you give. The greatest opportunities for worship are when you have been hit with the rocks, when the ship has sank, when the back is scarred with 39 lashes, that there's still something in you that says, God, you're worth it all. I'm not quitting. I'm not becoming wounded. I'm not going to become jaded or cynical or suspicious. My life is yours. Your greatest worship is that shipwrecks don't get to keep having influence. That rocks don't get to keep speaking. That lashes on the back don't get to keep influencing. I'm not saying you got to go from here to there like that. We have a whole lot of writing from Paul. And it was at the end that he said, don't hold it against them. It was a journey from Mark to that moment. I'm trying to think about how to say the next statement because I feel like it's important. You don't have the privilege of not trying to get to the last line. Number one, if you don't fight to get to that last line, then you are accepting a status that is lower than your birthright in Christ. You're accepting it. Not just that. You're in rebellion to Jesus who as our ultimate model said forgive them. I, I don't want to accept an inferior station in life nor do I want to be rebel- in rebellion to Christ. And it is very possible to have been hurt And it'd be very real. But you be the one that's actually in sin. Because you held it. And you allowed it to become the Lord of your life. This is heavy. I told you I felt a prophetic unction this morning. This ain't no like jump up and down and shout. But I feel the weight of heaven on this. It's possible that you were the one that was wronged. But you are in the wrong now. I don't like talking about this stuff. I'd really talk to you about how much God loves you. That's actually what I planned on preaching. You know, some of y'all would be like, I wish you'd have just went with plan A. (laughs) But if this stuff right here is going to be broken off of Highway 51, Tipton County, Shelby County, Lauderdale County, we need a couple of churches on Highway 51 that will say, let it be broken in here. So that we can be the prophetic forerunner for what God wants to do in our region. And maybe the greatest revival in Highway 51 is not that we have killer services. It's that we fully accept our killed flesh. And we say that the greatest move of God is that inferiority cynicism and suspicion and poverty mentality and all of that is broken off a region so this region can flourish and thrive in a way that it has never flourished and thrived historically and I do believe that the church is potent enough to be the tip of the spear that leads a whole region into that kind of renewal the journey church heavy word 
But all this means is God is inviting you to be a John the Baptist. To make room for the Lord to come do what He wants to do in a whole region. I want you to close your eyes. Thank you for enduring past 12 o'clock. I'm going to ask you to endure a few moments more because I feel the pressure of the Lord on this moment and I feel like some of us need to respond to it. Here's what I know. I've lived long enough and been in church long enough that there are very few people in this room that this did not resonate with on some level. But if you say, I've had some shipwrecks and the shipwreck has way too much influence in my life. I've been hit with some rocks and it's become too much of a voice of authority. I have been hit with some whips even in the church. And it has had way too much governance in my life. If that's you and you would like today to begin to mature to the last line and you'd love the help of the Holy Spirit to do it, would you lift your hand? Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. You Put your hands down. I want to, I want to reiterate, if you raised your hand, thank you for your honesty. But I want, to, I want to point this out. I'm not just talking about church hurt. Talking about what your mom and your dad did. Talking about what your first spouse did. Talking about what a family member did. What an employer did. So if you didn't raise your hand on the first one, but you know that there is a point, a moment, and season, and experience in your life that has held you a bit hostage and you want freedom from it. Let me see your hand. Yeah. It's all right. You are free. That moment is not authorized to hold you hostage any longer. But you have to make a choice. And the choice is that I'm going to become intentional about Maturing. I'm gonna I'm gonna just throw this out. You you can't mature if you don't consume scripture. But hey, it's not just about reading the Bible because plenty of people have a well highlighted Bible, but they're still a mess. And all the Bible is doing is them doing in their life is bringing them temporary comfort when they get really anxious. But the principles haven't been applied consistently. I want us to stand. I want you to keep your eyes closed because I do want to ask one more question. For anyone in the room who does not follow Jesus, for anyone in the room who has either never said yes, I want to submit my life to the ways of Jesus, I can't lead myself. I need Him to lead me. I have sinned and I need forgiveness. I have wronged people and wronged myself. And I need God to deliver me from that. If you've never done that, or some point in your history you did, but then you put your feet on a divergent path away from the Lord. Today is a really good day. To decide that he's going to be the Lord of your life and not all that other stuff. So if that's you, I'm not going to embarrass you. We're going to ask multiple people to come forward in a moment. But if that's you, I'd like to see your hand. Just for a moment. Hey, Pastor Hope, I want you to just get ready whatever's in your heart to sing. Van, you can start building a little. If you raised your hand, I want to pray with you. You got friends that want to pray with you. But what I really want is I want, I want something to break in your life. 
I'm not saying that you'll be automatically at the last line that Paul uttered. But something has to, something has to click. Something has to break. Something has to pop. Something has to shift. And I want to believe with you that that's going to happen today. So if you raised your hand, I just want you to come find a spot and pray. You can kneel. You can stand, whatever's most comfortable for you. I mean, a good 30 people or so, maybe even 40, raise their hands. So you're not going to be alone. You just come seek the Lord. What I want you to do when you come is I just want you to declare to the Lord, my life's a drink offering. And I want you to be honest, Lord, that hurt. But I'm tired of that being a leader in my life. Lord, that thing that was meant to kill me actually is going to become the final nail in the killing of my flesh. Come on, some of you need, some of you need to weaponize the thing that was meant to destroy you. The enemy meant it to kill you. But actually all it was, if you leverage it right was the hammer in somebody else's hand. So your fleshliness and your self-centeredness and your sin patterns can be fully dead. Come on, just seek the Lord for a moment. Just be honest, be transparent. God, I'm tired of this being influential in my life. I'm tired of this being a dominant figure, a shadow, a cloud. An ominous presence in my world. I'm tired of this influencing my emotions. I'm tired of having bitterness or anger. I'm tired of being suspicious or jaded or cynical. I'm tired of being guarded and not trusting. I'm I'm tired of being uh, flinchy and jumpy because something happened before and every time something looks or feels like that, I flinch. I'm tired of that. Come on. Come on, this is a grace of God moment right here. I told you there was prophetic unction on this. Some of you are about to start a new journey where the bully in your life, the bully's getting punched in the nose. The thing that has ruthlessly and mercilessly taunted you and harassed you and reminded you of your insufficiency and your deficiencies. It's being silenced. Its mouth is being zipped up. It's being sewn shut. Today, the voice of the Lord dominates again.